weeks on introductory stuff because in much the same way, I think most of the problems that people have with the book of Revelation is because they, don't, they enter in unprepared or they enter in without sharpening up a few basic skills. In other words, what I'm going to give you this morning is the product of basic Bible study techniques. And I'm amazed if you just look, if you just do your basic work at the front of the book of Revelation, how much more it makes sense by the time you get to the end. The problem is, is that most people don't do that. Most people, the way they approach Revelation is they approach the whole Bible in one way, and then when they get to the book of Revelation, for some reason, they throw off all of the guards and just dive in. And we're not going to do that. Basically, we're going we're to lay the foundation by way of introduction. And, and bottom, the bottom line is we're going to just look at the first three or four words of the book of Revelation. And if you understand the first three, four, or five words, certainly the first four verses of the book of Revelation, you pretty much have the whole thing nailed. Now, you're saying that's got to be an oversimplification. It is an oversimplification at some level, but at another level, it really is not. If you understand what's going on in the first four verses, the rest of the book makes a lot more sense. So that's what we're going to do this morning. There are two things I want to cover before we do that. And if you've ever been in a class with me, you'll know what these are. There are a couple of presuppositions before, as we enter into Revelation that are not only going to make it easier for you to learn, but it's going to, help, it's going to make our relationship a lot better. Okay, What do I mean by that? The first presupposition is from Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. Let me read that to you. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So in other words, Moses has just read the whole covenant law to Israel. This is shortly before his death. He's read it to them all, and now he says to them, the things that are revealed, the things that I just read to you, belong to us and to our children forever. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, some things he gave us that are quite clear, and those belong to us to obey them. But there are secret things that we may never know. And so when you begin to look at the book of Revelation, there are some times that we are going to come to a spot where it will be an I don't know moment or an I'm not sure moment or maybe this is one of those secret things of the Lord. In other words, some of you have been sold a bill of goods, I think, you know, that when we die and go to heaven, all of our questions will be answered. I don't know that they will. If God is infinite and we are finite, there will ne- be no end of questions and no end of things we can learn. And so what we have to realize going into a study like this is that some things maybe God doesn't intend for us to know. And if he doesn't intend for us to know, it doesn't help to fight about them and it doesn't help to, to try and figure them out oftentimes. So that's the first presupposition. The second presupposition is this. It's called the Burger King principle. And the, the reason it's called the Burger King principle is I have no idea. Um, my teacher, Richard Pratt, taught me this, and he had some great reason why he called it the Burger King Principle, but you'll remember it anyway just because it is crazy. Okay, the Burger King Principle is this. It's basically you can't say everything anytime you try to say something, otherwise you'll end up saying nothing at all. Make sense? Let me read it one more time. You can't say everything anytime you try to say something, otherwise you'll end up saying nothing at all. Why is that an important presupposition to go into the book of Revelation with? It, it, it's just this, is that you can't say everything. The book of Revelation, people come at the book of Revelation from a number of different angles. 
And guess what? I'm not. In fact, it's funny. I told the first service what people often do, like, you know, the handshaker line. If you ever wonder what happens in the handshaker line, so you can make a documentary, I think, about what happens in that line. Is, you know, people come through and shake your hand, and every Sunday, a good number of people, sometimes few, sometimes less, more or less, um, think it's their duty to tell me what I got wrong during the sermon or to tell me what grammatical mistake I made or some kind of mistake. And that's fine. I appreciate that. Um, after I said, gave this big, long speech in the first service, only one person did that. Um, so it, I had a laugh there. But the, the point is, is when you enter the book of Revelation, Some of you come from a tradition that is one way and another, and some from a tradition that's another direction. And on any given Sunday, I'm never going to be able to cover all. There's at least four major views or four major approaches to the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to be able to to use any of them or all of them at any given sermon. And so my point is this is, is I don't want to fight with you. In other words, if, if, you don't, if something wasn't said that you think ought to be said, just ask me about it, but I don't, I don't, my, I don't feel like it's my job is to, to argue about it. Basically, what I say is what I say, and that'll be what it is. So I'm not saying that's the, necessarily the best thing. I'm just saying that's, that's all I got for you. So with all of that said, as we enter the book of Revelation, we're going to answer three questions today we're going to look at. And what are the three questions we're going to look at? The first question is this. What kind of book is it? I mean, there's lots of different books. There's 66 books in the Bible, and they're not all the same kind. And what kind of book something is, what genre of literature it is, determines the way you approach it. So you've got to ask that question when you go into the book of Revelation. The second thing you've got to ask is to whom it was written. What was the audience to this book? Did they have specific issues that occasioned the writing of this book? But by the way, if you're a Bible study leader or a teacher, this is just basic stuff. You're just asking basic questions. What kind of literature is it? To whom was it written? And then the last question, of course, is why was it written? Did it have any, was it just written for the heck of it? Or did, was there a specific reason for it to be written? Was it general? Those are three questions. By the time you leave today, I hope you know the answers to. So the first question is this. What kind of book is it? Remember I said the, what you're asking there is what genre is it? And when we talk about genres of literature, the, the Bible has a number of them. It has uh, history. It has prose. It has poetry, it has psalms, proverbs, wisdom literature, letters are in there, all these kinds of things. And so the question is, what genre is, the, is revelation? Because you've got to understand what genre it is in order to understand the correct way to approach it. And the answer is pretty simple. It's a hybrid. One of the things that makes revelation so difficult to, for people to get their, their head around is that it is a hybrid of three different kinds of of literature in the Bible. In, in other words, some people will say Revelation is just something other. It's a different kind of uh, literature altogether. It's not. It, it really is a hybrid of three different types of literature that you find in the Bible. They're all coming together to do something. And what are the three types? The first type is you see apocalypse. Okay, apocalypse is a type of literature. And apocalypse was a type of literature that actually became a popular outside of biblical circles in the first century. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. The second kind of literature you have there is prophecy. Okay? We're going to talk about what does that mean? What does it mean for this book to be a book of prophecy? And the last thing it is, is it's an epistle. 
As simple as that. It's a letter written from one person to some other people. And you see all of that, by the way, in the first couple verses. So if you read it again, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. It's the word apocalypse. So the, so, so the first word in the whole book of Revelation is the word apocalypse. And then in verse 3, later on, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So which is it, John? Is it, is it apocalypse or is it prophecy? And then as soon as he says that, the very next thing he says in, chapter, in verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's a letter. And you've got to take all three of those things into account in order to get it right when you look at the book of Revelation. So what's the first thing we've got to look at? Apocalypse. When you think of apocalypse, um, I don't want you to answer out loud. We're too big to do that. But, but what do you think of? If you're, if you're a modern-day American, usually when you think of apocalypse or apocalyptic literature, if you're a kid, maybe you think of something like The Hunger Games. Have you read the Hunger Games trilogy where basically there's been some kind of massive nuclear war, something has gone on, and now there's only 12 districts that in, the, in the world, I guess, that exist, and, and everything, some people have nuclear weapons and other people have bows and arrows, and it's just real sort of crazy. Or maybe you're an adult and you've seen something like uh, the book of Eli, where you don't even know how it starts, other than you, you, the movie just starts and it's just a desert Wasteland. In other words, when we think of apocalypse in, modern, in our modern mind, we tend to think of this, something like this, like a mushroom cloud, just nuclear devastation. So when we think of, of apocalypse, we think it's gloom and doom, and you know, movies will build themselves you know, in a post-apocalyptic world. Denzel Washington. You know, I mean, it's, when we think of that, now in the first century, would they have thought gloom and doom when they thought of the word apocalypse? If they had access to it, in the first century, when they thought of the word apocalypse, instead of seeing a a nuclear cloud, they would have thought something more like this. That's a picture of the Wizard of Oz if you're on audio right now. What do I mean by that? Why, why did this, the scarecrow and the lion and the tin man and Dorothy, and you notice their faces, they're in awe. If you want to know what apocalypse is, or apocalypse does, or apocalyptic literature is supposed to do, just think in your mind of the Wizard of Oz, and remember how dark and gloomy and dingy it is, and then Dorothy, when the tor- she's taken up in the tornado, and the first time she opens her front door, and is just overwhelmed by the glory and the beauty and the crystal clear color of the world as it really is. It's the world as it really is that most people don't get to see. And not only that, but another idea of apocalypse is when Toto, remember the the Oz, the great and powerful, is, is projected and Toto goes and he pulls back the screen and there's just a little mild mannered professor behind there. Well, when you think of the book of Revelation and you think of the gospel, the exact same thing happens, only opposite. In other words, most of us, when we look at Jesus, when we consider Jesus, he's just sort of this out-of-work carpenter that, I guess, was crucified. He was down on his luck. But when you pull back the curtain, it's Jesus the great and terrible. Jesus the great, and by terrible, I mean that in the old-fashioned sense, the awesome, glorious one who rules the universe. That's actually behind the curtain. And that leads us to the, to the meaning of the word apocalypse. 
It means a number of things in the Greek. It can mean uh, to break through. It can mean to show forth. It can mean to reveal. But the primary meaning is this. It means to unveil something or an unveiling. You know, my wife already counseled me against this. When I started studying this and I came home and I was so excited and I said, I can't wait to my next wedding. And she said, why? And I said, because when the husband lifts the veil off the bride, I'm going to say, behold your apocalypse. (laughs) And being a good pastor's wife, she said, I don't think, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) But then I went on to explain, it means behold the most glorious, beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life. If that's what it meant, would it not be an appropriate thing to say? If that's what we thought it meant, it would be the most grand, great thing that you ever heard, and it would be the most honoring thing that you could ever tell a woman. Behold the glory. Lift that up, son. And he lifts it up. That's what it means. So the first word in the book of Revelation is apocalypse, unveiling. Now here's what it presumes, by the way. What it presumes is that we're not seeing something as clearly as we ought The reason you write an apocalypse is because something that should be seen is not being seen like it ought to be seen. It needs to be unveiled. It needs to be clarified for people. And so the question is, what is it that that the book of Revelation clarifies? Well, the answer is right there. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Did you notice what it didn't say? The text doesn't say the revelation of the end times or the revelation of the end of the world or the revelation or the apocalypse, the unveiling of everything you ever wanted to know about Apache helicopters and how they play into the European Union. Everything unveiled before your eyes. Did you notice it didn't say that? It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ. It's even bigger than that because the first three words of the book of Revelation are the word, uh, words apocalypsis, Jesu, Christu. In other words, there is no preposition in there. It doesn't say re- the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're, you, the intention is that you would provide that. You know, we do that in our own language sometimes as well. And so the interesting thing is, is you can put a number of different prepositions in there, and they are all appropriate, but they all do one thing to this book. So if we say it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, that's one way to put it. That means it's an unveiling of Jesus and all he is. That For some reason, the original audience and we don't see Jesus as clearly as we ought to see In fact, if we saw Jesus like we ought to see him, maybe our lives would be completely different. Maybe there'd be a lot more more suffering and struggle. Maybe there'd be a lot more joy. Maybe there'd be a lot more both. You see, if you're you're here and you're really fearful of change, Revelation's going to be a struggle for you. If you're here and all you want to do is change, it's going to be a struggle for you as well. Guess who it's going to be a struggle for? Everybody. Because the more and more you see Jesus for who he is, the more you see yourself for who you are. And I can only tell you for me, that's a struggle sometimes. But it's, it's, so it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, or it could be the revelation by Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, it's going to unveil who he is, or it's him unve- doing the unveiling, but it's coming from him. 
And we see that later, that Jesus is the one that gives this information. And finally, it could be the revelation about Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is this. When you read the word apocalypse and revelation, what you should think is when someone asks you, so what's the book of Revelation about? The answer is not, you know, the book of Revelation is about end times. Whenever someone says that to me, you know what, what other book in the Bible is about the end times? Book of Genesis. You know what other book? Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans. Get the idea? That every single book in the Bible is about the end of the world. But also every single book in the Bible is about Jesus. And so the point of the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's It's almost as if God is saying, if you haven't got it up to this point... Let me pull back the curtain to show you exactly what you should have been getting for the past 65 books, and that's that this whole gig is about Jesus. It's, it's of him, it's by him, it's about him, and that kind of language should sound familiar to you because that's also the language that Paul uses in Colossians. All, all, the, all the creation was created through him and by him and for him and to him, that the whole book of Revelation at the end of the day is primarily about the person and work of Jesus. So that leads us to the next point, which is basically, the, John also says that this is a prophecy. And the question you have to ask yourself is, maybe if I've been understood the word apocalypse incorrectly, do I understand the word prophecy correctly? At least from a biblical point of view. From a biblical point of view, what do you, what, again, what is the primary purpose of prophecy? Generally speaking, we tend to think the primary purpose of prophecy, if you ever watch religious television... The primary purpose of prophecy is to predict the future, is it not? And it's to tell you how to invest your stocks, and it's to tell you, make sure you've got enough food stored, and all these things, that, that it's about prediction. And you know, there are prophecy sections in the Bible, Old Testament and New, that are about predicting things a little bit, but the vast majority of prophecy in the Bible is about one thing, and it's to, get, it's to make a point, and that point is almost always moral. In other words, the prophecy that's given in the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament primarily is given to to elicit some change in behavior in the hearer. It's trying to persuade you. So if you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't just show up and start predicting things willy-nilly. They came to Israel and said, you have sinned against the Lord our God and now you need to repent. And sometimes they didn't get it very well and so they had to draw really colorful pictures for Israel to get it. And sometimes they still didn't get it. And so the point is, is that they're always trying to persuade them to either repent from their sins or to have faith in God or to be encouraged in their faith in God. That prophecy at the end of the day is always about being persuaded to make some moral decision, some change in your life. Prediction, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But prophets at the end of the day, they want you to change behavior. And so to this point in the book of Revelation, right? What are we in the second verse or third verse? We have an unveiling of Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. And the, uh, the next thing that we need to consider in the book is that the book wants us to make some kind of change in our life or some kind of ongoing change or some kind of moral decision that the book is going to take us to. And so that leads to the last part of this, which is the fact that it's an epistle or it's a letter. In verse 4, it, John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
That, ma- that makes it a letter, and it's just common epistolary form in the Bible. Now, the problem w- that most people run into, in my opinion, in my experience, the reason that a lot of people sort of don't get out of Revelation all they might otherwise get out of Revelation is because they look at it from the, through the lens of apocalypse and they look at it through the lens of prophecy, but they forget that it is also a letter. And by the way, the whole thing is a letter. The whole thing. It is one letter, actually, to seven churches. That's important as well. Some people treat the book of Revelation as that it's seven different letters. In fact, I was reading the introduction to my, my ESV this morning. You know how it'll have a little three-sentence introduction to a book? And here's what it said. It broke my heart. It said, Revelation begins with letters from Christ himself to these churches, letters that include commendation, criticism, and comfort. Then comes a long series of visions of judgment, blah, 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 blah. In other words, the point they're making is it begins with letters, but it ends as prophecy. But that is not the case whatsoever. It begins as a letter. Revelation 1.4 says this, says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... And you know what the last verse of this book says? Revelation 22, 21 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. When John did that, he took took a significant uh, quiver, uh, arrow out of the quiver of people that think it's only about the future. In other words, I, I heard someone on the radio this week say that. He said the, the first four chapters are about churches and the last the, several, the rest of the book is all about the future. It has nothing to do with right now. Well, John expected that the, the churches that received this letter would receive it as a letter and that the whole thing would be applied from beginning to end so that all of the chapters from 4 all the way to 22 are also part of the letter that they were to receive. And now the question is, what is the purpose of a letter And the purpose is just this, that they're written to specific churches to address specific problems with an application of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So in other words, if you read the book of Romans or you read the book of Colossians, one of Paul's writings, what does he do? He usually spends the first half of the book teaching them the gospel. What what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? What did he accomplish by his resurrection? And then the second half of the book, he says, now here's how that applies to your marriage. Or here's how this, that applies to church discipline. Or here's how it applies to conflict. So what John is doing here is he wrote, writes one letter to seven churches, which, by the way, means he expected that all seven churches would be reading each other's mail. That's true. He didn't say, you know, I'm going to send this part to Ephesus and this part to Sardis and this part to Pergamum. He sent one letter to seven churches and he expected them all to read every one of the letters, and apparently he expected them all to be able to apply the, the last chapters of the book of Revelation. In other words, he didn't say the letters are done now, the rest of the stuff, God only knows, but it's what I saw. He doesn't say that. He says this is part of the letter too. This, what is in chapters 4 through 22, is part of the finished work of Jesus being applied to your lives. And so what are the churches? What, is, what was going on then, just very quickly? The seven churches, but just to give you some background, if you're on audio, I'm showing a map now. You've got Asia Minor to your right, and Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey right now. And then you have Greece over there to your left, which is modern-day Greece. And right down here, actually right there, 
you probably can't even see it from where you're sitting. There's a little white dot in the midst of that blue, and that's the Isle of Patmos. That's where John wrote this letter from. And then who received the letter? It's this ring of churches right here. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these, that, that, I'm just giving you that to give you some to, to, to orient you geographically. So all of those churches were in the, basically the same area. If you traveled east, you'd be into Galatian territory. If you traveled a little bit further down, you'd be into other places. But the bottom line is everything you see on the map, and this is really important, everything you see up there, including everything that's not in red that I've given you, at the, at the time of the writing of this letter was part of the Roman Empire. Okay, that the Roman Empire extent was basically extended throughout most of the known world at the time. And that becomes part of what informs this book. One of the things that makes Revelation more difficult to study, because it creates a lot more literature to study, but it makes it more profitable to study, is the fact that we have a lot of extra-biblical sources that were writing at the time that gave us history. People like um, Eusebius or people like... Uh, Josephus, Pliny the Younger. And so you have the seven churches. The question is, what, what was the sit rep? Right? That's, a, that's an army word for what was this, the situation report. What was going on here? So you've got these seven churches that are part of the Roman Empire. And what was going on that would persuade John to write such a letter that was also a prophecy, that was also an apocalypse? Was there, was, what was going on that was so bad? And what was interesting is this. Well, I'm going to have to set things up for you. The first thing you've got to realize is that around the A.D. 95, the statue that you see, that, that's the statue that I guess he had commissioned for himself, of the Emperor Domitian. And in the ancient Near East, especially the first century, I mean, apparently Roman emperors, generally speaking, were particularly narcissistic, some much more than others, and he apparently was one of those. And so while everyone sort of had the idea throughout Roman history that the emperor is deity or the emperor is God, every now and then someone would come along and say, no, seriously, I am. Like, so when you, when you go into a religious temple, you need to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the fire or whatever their thing is, and throw it on the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. And Domitian, he probably never, no one, there's no evidence that he actually went, you know, around on horseback persecuting Christians. But if you didn't render the, what was due him, then you could, you could end up you know, being fed to the lions or whatever the, the issue was. So you had an emperor who was a little bit on the wacky side, and then you had pagan trade guilds. Now this is important too, because in the Roman Empire, much like in the United States now, there are some areas where you can't work, or it's not, it's not in your best interest to work if you're not a part of a union or, or a guild. And it was the same way in the Roman Empire. And so here you have um, an emperor who says, worship me. And then you have trade guilds who say, you know, how do you think we could curry favor with the emperor? What if we threw parties for the emperor? And every time you know, we came together, and they, they would hear, you know, that local 101 of the, the statue makers are, they worship Caesar all the time. Maybe Caesar will cut them some slack. Maybe he won't receive as much taxes. Maybe, maybe something like this is going on. And so Christians were part of the trade guilds because if they wanted to work, they had to be a part of a guild just like anyone else. And so up to this point, now this is recorded by Pliny, um, basically Christians could say, when you go to a, say they went to a big feast for their guild, 
And everyone said, okay, now is the time when we take a pinch and throw it up in the air and say, Caesar is Lord. That the Christians could sort of shrug their shoulders and say, hey, you know, Jesus is Jewish. You know, just saying. Why would they say that? Well, because Jews were the only religion in the Roman Empire that, that were not required to bow down to Caesar. They were given religious preference. Much like today, you're going to see the church in the United States, we are given religious preference as well. You know, there's, all, there's always rumors in Scuttlebutt, like what if, what if the government takes away the church's tax-exempt status? It's similar to what was going on then. So the, the, Jewish, the, the Jews at the time, they were exempt from having to bow to Caesar, at least to say Caesar is Lord, and Christians up to this point were basically seen as a sect of Judaism. And that's why if a guy turned around to a Christian and said, hey, do you wanna, are you going to worship Caesar? They could say, you know, eh, I'm sort of Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And so about that time, and a lot of this has to do, people think, because of the, the missionary journeys of the apostles and things, the Jewish leaders sort of got tired of it. And so let's say there's a guy named Joe, and he says, you know, I'm not really going to worship Caesar because, you know, I'm, Jesus was Jewish. I'm sort of Jewish. You know how that works. And then the Jewish guy would say, oh, no, 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 no. He's not Jewish. They're totally different. They follow this guy named Jesus. And so what that did is put Christians in a pinch, basically. It put them in a position where they now had to decide what they're going to do. And, and Pliny says that basically they made three different decisions. One decision that a lot of Christians made is they just renounced Jesus. So they said, if you, 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 you're going to be thrown to the lions or you're going to be burned at the stake or at least you're going to be kicked out of our guild, it's probably more likely if you don't worship Caesar. And some people, some people said, okay, Jesus is out, Caesar's in. Simple as that. Other people, on the other hand, apparently, uh, compromised and rationalized. What do I mean? They said, you know what? They're at home talking to their wife. You know, you've had these conversations. So I throw a pinch up there and say, ah, Caesar is Lord, but Jesus knows I really trust him. Jesus knows I'm really a Christian. And so they end up rationalizing and compromising with the world around them and eventually make no difference at all. And some people said, I can't do that, I'm a Christian, and they paid the price for it. And so what is the point that John's making here? You see, he wrote to seven churches in Asia. Two of the churches that he wrote to were basically done. In, in other words, they're about to go out of business. If you're... You know, a pastor in a in Presbyterian church, at least, every now and then a church will shut its doors and close down. And it's always a sad time. Two of the churches in the book of Revelation are right at that point. Two of the churches in the book of Revelation are not particularly healthy, but they're, they're doing okay. And three of the churches in the book of Revelation could sort of go either way. And you know what's interesting? When you look at the book of, of Revelation, when you look at the seven churches that are in Revelation, you know what church they remind me of? They remind me of this church. They remind me not just of this church, they remind me of every church I've ever been in. Because you know what this, one of the big struggles is in the book, in, with these churches? At the end of the day, we're going to see it boils down to something that you, I know, have heard before. I hope you've heard before. The churches basically were failing to be gospel-driven and outwardly faced. 
In other words, how did they respond to, to just the threat of persecution? Not the fact, there were, in other words, there weren't people going through killing Christians. It was just this threat, like, gosh, life is going to be really hard if we go and we have to do the whole pagan thing. So why don't we just avoid it? Why don't we just stay in here by ourselves? As long as it's just us in church, there won't be any problems. Right? Everyone said that except, of course, the pastor or the elders. And you know, I remember when Judy and I, my wife, we first started attending this church. I was a member, if, you, if you're visiting, I was a member before I ever came on staff. And I forget the person that I talked to, but I asked the question, I'm a big question asker, about why we did something here. This is 10 years ago. And I, I don't even remember the, what the issue, but I will remember the statement for the rest of my life. The person said, why would we not? It's just us. It's just us. And as long as it's just us, why would we think about changing anything? Why would we think about doing anything? Well, the interesting thing, that was the issue with the churches and the book of Revelation. And what John is going to do is he is going to get them, hopefully by shock and awe, if you will, to start turning and being outwardly faced, to start turning and engaging the world with the gospel. You know that the picture, it's a very famous picture. It's Jesus knocking on the door of someone's heart. You know what I'm talking about? You can Google it. It's a picture of Jesus. Not, I mean, besides horrible theology because it's, it's about churches and all that kind of stuff. What we fail to understand, the, the whole point of the picture is Jesus is knocking on the heart. Are you, going to open, are you going to open the door and let him in? But what's not shown in the picture but is true theologically is sometimes he sets a fire in the basement. Sometimes he sets a fire in the basement in order to drive you out of the house. And the whole book of Revelation, in some sense, is Jesus setting a fire in your basement. Because you know what? It's not just us. When you get into the book of Revelation, we find out that it's all of creation. I mean, I drove here this morning. It was about 6.30 or 7 in the morning. It was dark outside. One of the things I don't think you know about me is I absolutely loathe with every fiber of my being Canadian geese. Oh, I just cannot stand those things. And I pulled in here, and I got out of my truck. And as soon as I got out of my truck, there was an overwhelming noise. There, it sounded like there were millions of them in that cow pond behind the church. But instead of being angry, I just put all my stuff down and listened. Because I thought, tell me, today you were talking about all of creation singing out and crying out and praising Jesus. How do you know that's not what those geese are doing? Leave them alone. And so as we go into this, you have to consider what John's purpose of the book is. And the purpose of the book, and this is a macro purpose because there are lots of small ones. John's purpose in writing this book is basically this, and I'm going to end with this, is to remind the church that Jesus is three things, basically, or has done three things. The first thing that he reminds us of is that Jesus has won. In other words, Jesus has achieved victory over sin and death definitively. He has won. Jesus has conquered and he has ascended into heaven, and from there he rules the world even now. So Jesus has won. There's nothing more for him to accomplish. Everything, by the way, that you see, we're going to look at more things next week as far as intro material, but there's nothing you see in the book of Revelation that you haven't already seen somewhere else in the rest of the Bible. Okay? And so what we know is that Jesus, by virtue of his death and his resurrection, has won definitively over sin and death. But you also see in the book of Revelation that Jesus will win. 
That there's coming a day when he will return and he will make good. Everyone will know that he has won. Every eye shall behold him. Verse 8 says, or 7 of chapter 1 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. That there is coming a day when in all of his glory, Jesus will come back and he will win finally over everything that is going on. The most important thing in the book of Revelation, though, is that instead of telling us just that Jesus has won or that Jesus will win, here's what's so important. is what the book of Revelation teaches us more than anything else is that Jesus is winning right now. In other words, if you're going to write a letter to encourage people to, to engage in the gospel, you don't tell them, hey, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let me show you for 20 chapters. Or you don't say all this stuff is going to happen in the future. So what you learn in the book of Revelation is not that just Jesus has won, past tense, and that he will win, future tense. It's that he is winning right now. And that's going to be the hardest thing for us to grasp because if you're a Christian, at least, you spend most of your life trying to remind yourself either that Jesus has won, he forgave my sins, he has justified me, he has sanctified all these things he's done in the past, or you try and remind yourself in the future things are going to get better sometime. Sometime in the future, they're going to be okay. He is eventually going to come back. The hardest thing to convince yourself of is the fact that he is winning right now. All the hard things you're going through in your life, guess whose fault that is? Ultimately, it's Jesus. You know, maybe, maybe the hard things, you, you know, if you think about it, how does Jesus win? Jesus wins by losing. Maybe that's what he's working in your life right now. But he is doing it right now. When you look around the world, Jesus is winning every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself right now. Jesus is winning the world to himself. He is pressing in on the world, and the world doesn't like it oftentimes. But the fact is, this is happening right now. And the question for the church is, for the seven churches, and ultimately for our church, is are we going to be a part of that? Are we going to engage? Because really John is going to say you either stay inside and go out of business or you go outside and face the world. But you face the world with this gospel that is bigger and better and more glorious than anything you have ever seen. We'll cover more of that next week. Think about that. So from the Wizard of Oz, the end. Why don't I pray for us and we will continue with the worship. Father, I pray that you would continue to work in our heart um, not just the, the, the right view of Revelation or the, the, the right millennial view or the right uh, presuppositions, but that you would work the right Savior into our hearts, that we would see Jesus and behold him in his glory and be changed as a result of it. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.